When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It is Henry Zamoda, and on today's show, we have Scott Horton. This is a cold intro because we forgot to do the intro while speaking to Scott. But the reason is because when Scott jumps on the line, he's just kind of a ball of energy, and we start talking about the topic immediately, and we don't want to interrupt the the flow of the conversation with, uh, with an introduction. So that's why we're doing it now. But uh, if you guys don't know who Scott is, he is uh, definitely one of my heroes and, and biggest influences. He is the writer of Fool's Errand and uh, Enough Already in his most recent book, Hotter Than the Sun, which is all about nukes, which will be one of the topics of discussion. But on today's show, we talk a lot about the war in Ukraine and just really the overall risk of nuclear war. Uh, Scott was gracious to give us about two hours of his time, or, or actually a lot more than that. And um, we had a great conversation Uh Fair warning, though, midway through this show, my audio went on the fritz, so we are reverting to Skype audio. I don't think most people will mind, unless you're a real audio snob, but I just listened to it. It sounds fine, so I think you guys are going to love it. All right, enjoy the show. You know, I obviously mm-hmm. wanted to talk to you about your book that that you just came out with. Uh, so it's a collection of interviews uh, <clears throat> that are pretty much about everything you need to know about nukes. So uh, I guess topics, they range from, you know, nuclear, the current conflict right now between the U.S. and Russia to Hiroshima and Nagasaki to, uh, you know, the Israeli secret weapons program to uh, weird accidents like when, you know, the Air Force almost nuked North Carolina. And then all the transcripts are with interviews with with bona fide geniuses. So you got Daniel Ellsberg, you got Grant Smith, you got Seymour Hirsch, you got Gareth Porter, uh, Ray McGovern on there, Chas Freeman interviews. So I personally love transcript books like this that take interviews and transcript them uh, just because it makes it a lot easier for me to reference it. Uh, but did you plan on publishing this in advance or was this in response to the uh, upcoming apocalypse that we're looking at right now? No, um, I'm writing a book about the current war and this is a giant, horrible interruption. But first of all, let me say, I'm really glad that you liked it. And I know that when you tell someone it's a book of transcripts, that that probably is not too appealing to most people, because as you say, might be more convenient than listening to all the interviews, but it's not more convenient than just reading a well-written book. You know what I mean? As far as Mm. that goes. However, when I read through it, I really liked it and thought, man, for a book of transcripts, this thing is killer. And I'm not really bragging because the reality is, as you just said, the credit just goes only to my awesome taste and guests. And then I'm hopefully asking them some relevant questions, but let Dan Ellsberg talk for 45 minutes. You're going to find out some things. And so that's really what it is. It's the book is them talking. It's not me. Um, and so, uh, but yeah, I'm really proud of it. It's great. But the story behind it is that, you know, I was minding my own business when my friend Jared wall, who, uh, is one of the sponsors of my show, uh, the Delta eight weed, 
It's the hemp spot, THC for the, the hemp spot.com for all your Delta eight pot needs in the mail. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, but he emailed me and said, <clears throat> and by the way, he helped me research, um, enough already as well. Uh, he gets credit in the book for that. Um, but he emailed me, uh, um, the way I remember is a PDF file, like already finished. Hey, look what I did. And it's 350 pages of interviews all about nuclear weapons going back 20 years on every aspect of the thing. And I'm like, man, that's great. But geez, I'm really busy doing all these other projects right now. And this is just going to have to go on the back burner. So I put it, you know, it was in my files to get to someday because going from even as good a job as he did, and he did an excellent job transcribing those interviews. And that's not easy to do. A lot of people say they can transcribe things, but not everybody really is talented at it. So he did an exceptional job, but it still needed a severe edit and just entire production done to get it actually ready to publish as a book. And so um, I was just putting it off. And then when the war broke out, I started, I took that two hour speech that I did in February about the background of the Russia-Ukraine war. And I started making a book out of that. And I'm co-authoring that with Daryl Cooper, Martyr Made podcast. Oh, I didn't know you were, you, he yeah. was involved in the project as well. Yeah. So what happened was he, I did a two hour speech and then he did a two hour podcast, both of us saying the same thing, only we know all this different stuff about it. So he had all these different sources and all these other key quotes and important points. So what I decided to do was, and of course this has made the publishing the book take 10 times as long, but what I decided to do was essentially take all the best parts of his speech or his podcast and paste them into my speech and then make him my co-author. But then, of course, you know how I am, Henry. So it turned into damn fool's errand of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. So now it's got, it's it'll be done next spring if we're not all dead by then. You know, maybe <laughs> if we're lucky. Um, and part of that is because things got so heated in this thing that I decided, I guess, in March or April or May or some kind of time, I decided that, man, I better just put this book out now. I was I really wanted to wait until the Russia book was done and then do the nuke book after that. But now I'm like, man, we could really have a nuclear war. And I got a book about why we ought to not have a nuclear war sitting right now in a folder ready to publish. Basically, I kind of feel like I need to hurry up and just get that the hell out there. That way, when we all turn to dust, I can die shouting. I told you so or something. <laughs> no, I don't know. Um, so but then, of course. You know, so the book is great. I hope people really like it. And, you know, I went through and we added a few interviews and took a few out and rearranged some things and, you know, got it just right for you. Um, and then now, but the problem was that was really pulling the e-brake on the Russia book. So now I'm really, you know, only now really getting my ass back in gear. I quit Twitter again, finally, cold turkey, turned it over to a friend. It's a good choice. Quitting good Twitter is it will make your life a lot better. Oh, it's just deleting the app and just saying, sucks. fuck it. I'm not looking. I'm not getting my news from here. I know. It's, and it's, you know, it drives people crazy. Like it turns I, people into like really smart people into just vindictive, just assholes. Yeah, it's perfect for telling someone how stupid they are, but not perfect for explaining yourself. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? It's just um, it's that that character limit. It's uh, you'd think it was designed for that. Um, and maybe it is because that leads to a lot of engagement. That was when I quit it the first time. I was uh, with a young family member standing in line at a carnival. Arguing with some stranger where he's this this complete idiot. 
with some absolutely inane point. And I'm sitting here arguing with him when I should be living my life. I'm like about to get on an amusement park ride. And I'm sitting here arguing with some stranger from God knows where, who I don't care if he gets hit by a car in a minute. I'll, I wouldn't even know if he did. And I thought, man, what am I doing, you know? And I, and I say too, uh, not to speak ill of the dead or whatever, but it's been a few years. What the hell? That was the worst thing that ever happened to Justin Romando. Twitter was. And his articles went from great to, well, he showed up at least. And that was, it was Twitter that did it. I'm the witness to it, man. I'll tell you what, that was the thing. And I know that I could not have written either of my books if I would had been on Twitter that whole time. And then in fact, when Russiagate like finally went bust and the Mueller report came out and no one is in trouble for colluding with Russia, I didn't even go back on Twitter to retweet myself and say, fuck you, I told you so or anything just because I just wanted, I wanted to really bad that day too. But I stayed away, man. Um, and then, but once enough already came out, I had to go back on there to try to, pub, you know, to promote the book mm-hmm. and try to get enough already out there. So, but it's probably served its purpose for that. And then the truth is I cannot write another book while I'm on Twitter and probably publishing hotter than the sun took twice as long as it should have. Cause I couldn't turn Twitter off during that whole process. <laughs> so, but I'm done now and I'm, I'm definitely getting hard back to work on the Russia book now. And it's, of course, the book is about how this is all Bill Clinton's fault him and George Bush and Barack Obama and Donald Trump and Joe Biden. I mean, let's pull it back. Like, let's do, we, we talked about the Ukraine crisis and what led up to it, but I mean, we might, we may as well just start right now. Like, why is there a conflict in Ukraine right now? Okay. I'll do it super fast mode as I can. Soviet Union falls apart. H.W. Bush's government promises, look, if you guys let Germany go and pull your troops back out of the Eastern Europe, then we will not move NATO further east and all the documents are out that show that they promised that over and over again they didn't sign a treaty over it but they did make absolute assurances that it wouldn't happen well that's that's the argument against it they're like well we don't got it in writing but you know what that's not valid it is in writing over and over and over again but it's not in writing in a ratified treaty but you know what when jack kennedy promised to remove the missiles from turkey and promised not to invade cuba ever again that wasn't a treaty either. That was a secret deal that Jack Kennedy's brother, the attorney general, right. uh, who had no jurisdiction whatsoever other than serving as the president's personal emissary, uh, Robert Kennedy, his little brother, made with the Soviets. And guess what? That security guarantee given to the old Soviet government in 1962 has held ever since then. I and mean, America hasn't invaded Cuba in all this time. It wasn't a treaty. But Kennedy meant it when he made it. It was a promise and mm-hmm. it ought to be good. And what kind of scumbags are the Americans that they go around going, oh, when all you got was a handshake, you didn't get it in writing. That's what a scumbag liar backstabber does. Right. They admit that it was a verbal promise. And meanwhile, we have it in writing. It's at the National Security Archive at George Washington University. Anybody can look at it themselves. What Gorbachev heard. And there it all is. There's a great article. In fact, add Ted Snyder to your search terms. Ted Snyder, NATO East. And you'll go read a great article by Ted Snyder or he marshals 10 good pieces of evidence for you at antiwar.com. Probably the best single take I know of off the top of my head. But basic bottom line is Gorbachev would have never pulled back out of Eastern Europe if he hadn't have been promised that. And his government would never have gone along with that if the Americans hadn't made that promise. Then Bill Clinton broke that promise for essentially parochial concerns for Polish votes in Illinois. 
you know, for his and for Lockheed dollars to the Democratic Party. And that was what it was all about. And so they expanded NATO. Then W. Bush comes in. And even though Putin offers Russian airspace and Russian military bases in Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan to help us invade Afghanistan and the rest, two months later, December 2001, George W. Bush tears up the anti-ballistic missile treaty of 1972, uh, one of Nixon's great achievements that limited uh, anti-missile missiles to very few and uh, embarked on this project, which, of course, is a giant boondoggle and a giant scam. doesn't work at all. Shooting a bullet with a bullet and all this stuff is a total hoax. Um, but it's worth hundreds of billions of dollars of a theft. So the Republicans, of course, you know, all for that. So they tore up this important treaty. Putin begged them not to do it. And they expanded NATO by, I forgot, there's two different rounds, but expanded NATO even further. Oh, and I left out, I'm sorry, on Bill Clinton, he also kicked them while they were down economically with the Harvard Boys program, shock therapy and all that. But they weren't really trying to help them. They're just, you know, the way they did some of the other Eastern European states. They're trying to essentially make them as bankrupt as they could. And then they backed uh, the um, uh, Mujahideen in Bosnia and in Kosovo in 94, 95, and then in 1999. They backed the Mujahideen in Chechnya in 1999 and 2000. And um, uh, was the major one I was forgetting there uh, on my Clinton rant. Anyway, and W. Bush continues. Oh, and I should have said, you know, they, oh, we're just expanding our defensive alliance. It's purely defensive. But at the same time, they said out of area or out of business. And so the first thing they did just three weeks after bringing Poland, uh, Hungary and Romania, uh, uh, pardon me, and the Czech Republic into uh, NATO, they launched the war against Serbia, the aggressive war to break off Kosovo uh, for the Kosovo Liberation Army of gangsters and terrorists and murderers. Um, and then. Uh, so W. Bush comes in, tears up the ABM treaty, expands NATO even further, including up to uh, the Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia on Russia's border. Well, Lithuania, I think, just borders Belarus, but it's right there. Um, and then um, promised in 2008, despite the Russians' absolutely crystal clear warnings uh, that we know from uh, Chelsea Manning and Julian Assange's uh, State Department cables leak that the Russians had warned our current CIA director, William Burns, yet means yet. Do not try to bring Ukraine or Georgia into NATO or there's going to be a problem. People can read it themselves. The brightest of red lines and uh, France and Germany wouldn't let Bush bring him into NATO for that very reason. It would be an unnecessary provocation against the Russians. But then um what he did was he went ahead and put them on the fast track toward future integration into NATO as soon as we can and all this kind of stuff. This led immediately, like four months later, to the war in Georgia, where, you know, to join NATO, you have to have settled borders. You can't have an ongoing border dispute and join the NATO alliance or else we got a real problem. You know, they're talking about waiving that so they can bring Ukraine into NATO now, even though they have a border dispute with Russia ongoing, which is absolutely insane. But in this case, there are these two breakaway provinces under Russian so-called protection anyway in South Ossetia and Abkhazia. And so the government of Georgia just attacked South Ossetia and uh, which and killed Russian peacekeepers in his initial assault, which led to the Russians then coming across the Caucasus Mountains and smashing the Georgian army and forcing them back out again and taking possession of South Ossetia 
calling it independent, but under Russian protection ever since then. The Americans, you might remember in the election season of 2008, John McCain said, Russian aggression, Russian aggression, Russian attack, Russian attack. And Barack Obama, of course, went along with that whole thing. It wasn't until after the election in, in late November of 2008 that the New York Times admitted that they'd all been lying about that all along and that it was Georgia that had started that war. And by the way, Dick Cheney reportedly demanded that W. Bush launch cruise missile attacks on the Roki Tunnel underneath the Caucasus Mountains and collapse the tunnel on Russian armored divisions uh, coming through, which could have led directly to a, a nuclear confrontation with Russia right there. Let's, let, let's go to put pen in that because that's really interesting. And I've, you know, I've read about that before. So there was a proposal to kill the Russian army while they were underground uh, traveling under the mountains, essentially. It was Cheney. And that was too crazy for George W. Bush. Me. Yeah, it was Cheney insisted. And Bush reportedly, this is, I believe, the wrong Suskin version. Bush said, who here agrees with Vice that we should bomb the Russians? And nobody raised their hand. And he said, thank you very much, Vice. And that was it. Because by then, thank God, Bush was tired of this guy's horrible advice. And if if Stephen Hadley wasn't going to back him up, then forget it. You know, he's national security advisor at the time. If Hadley wasn't going to side with Cheney, then it was, you know, thank goodness that the cool patient wisdom of W. Bush prevailed <laughs> and saved all of our lives. Um, and that's the first and last time we've ever heard you say that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? Um, it's pretty ironic, but true in that in that circumstance, you know, compared to what he was up against. Um, now, so then Obama comes in and um, let me make sure I'm not leaving out any big. Uh, oh, let me let me let me say this about Bush. When he tears up the anti-ballistic missile treaty, what this means is he's now going to put these anti-missile systems into Romania and Poland, and then the radars in the Czech Republic. And um, you know, the insistence here is that this has nothing to do with Russia. It's not enough missiles to shoot down a first strike from this from the Russians on Europe anyway. And don't worry, it's just here to shoot down Iranian nuclear missiles. The Iranians don't have nukes and they don't have missiles that can reach Eastern Europe at all. Mm -hmm. So this is ridiculous hoax, right? But so Putin also says that, you know, uh, he doesn't believe that this is for Iran. He thinks it's for Russia. And he, you know, recognizes that it's not probably enough anti-missile missiles to shoot down a Russian attack. But what it is, is it's what they call the Aegis Onshore, the Mark 41 missile launcher, MK 41 missile launcher, that can be used easily to fit Tomahawk cruise missiles that can be fitted with hydrogen bombs. And they have no inspections regime over the facility. And Putin has said for, I don't know, almost a decade now, that like, look, man, you guys could put Tomahawk cruise missiles in there and threaten my country. So I think it's a problem. And I really wish you wouldn't. And this was, you know, in his demands of last December, but we'll get to that. This is Bush's big project. Now, Obama comes in, continues it all through his first term. And then you guys are, might remember the hot mic moment when Barack Obama was caught on a hot microphone backstage talking with Dmitry Medvedev, who was at that time the Russian president, while Putin was cooling his heels in the parliament. And Obama tells Medvedev, tell Vladimir, I can't do anything now. Give me some room. And after the election, then I'll be able to reverse the policy. And he's talking about, he's essentially promising, tell Vladimir, I promise 
that I will dismantle the anti-missile systems in Romania and Poland. But he didn't do that. He broke that promise. Just the same as he promised that uh, all he wanted was a no-fly zone to protect the poor innocent civilians of Benghazi in um, the, uh, what, in March 2011 and got the UN, got the Russians to agree on the UN Security Council to allow the no-fly zone. And then he used it as a giant bait and switch for a full-scale, nine-month-long regime change war for the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, a.k.a. the Libyan veterans of al-Qaeda in Iraq from Iraq War II, where we still had troops through the end of 2011 in the name of fighting al-Qaeda in Iraq, while we're taking the side of the Libyan veterans at that moment for that whole year long, beginning in the third month of that year, earlier in February of that year. Um, just the same as they began supporting the Bin Ladenites in Syria at the beginning of 2011 as well. Um, so, and then, oh, and I left out from W. Bush, I'm sorry, my Bush rant, and this continues through Obama, but I'll just make it part of my Obama rant, is he continued the policy of what are called the color-coded revolutions, which were, you know, essentially CIA coups, National Endowment Democracy for Democracy coups, dressed up as local revolutions, popular revolutions. And so this really started under Bill Clinton with the overthrow of Slobodan Milosevic in 2000. Then they went for um, Edward Shevard, pardon me, Edward Shevard Nadza in um, Georgia in 2003, overthrew him in favor of Mikhail Saakashvili, who then blew back, uh, you know, five years later, in, uh, and caused that trouble that almost led to war that we just talked about uh, when he attacked South Ossetia. Um, then in 2004, they supported the Orange Revolution in Ukraine, where they prevented uh, Viktor Yanukovych from the more Russia-leaning party of regions from taking power and kept the guy from the West, uh, Yushchenko, in. Then in 2005, they attempted the Denim Revolution in Belarus. They succeeded temporarily, at least, in the uh, pink or lemon, uh, depending on which you prefer, a revolution in Kyrgyzstan, of all places. Uh, and then they tried the Cedar Revolution in Lebanon. This is all in 2005. And um, uh, Belarus and Lebanon failed completely, but they went for it. Then you'll remember the Green Revolution in 2009 was essentially the same thing uh, in uh, Iran, where they took, you know, again, a disputed election as like the Ukrainian template. You seize on that, you refuse to concede the election. And um, like, for example, if in 2020, Trump had just come out way ahead and after all the unrest and everything all summer long, they just stayed out in the streets and refused to accept his reelection until somehow he would back down. That's sort of the template of the color-coded revolution. In that case, suppressing his October surprise was enough. Uh, and him suppressing his own mail-in vote uh, was enough. But anyway, um, and it sort of was on that color-coded revolution template, honestly, uh, a lot of what they did to Trump. But um, point here is this makes the, um, and, and you don't have to be a Trump supporter to uh, point that out, by the way. I'm not one. I never have been one. But I'm just saying the truth is the truth. And what they did to him, as far as all that goes, was pretty extraordinary. Um, but uh, in any case, well, and we'll get to him in a minute anyway. Uh, Obama continues this tradition of these color-coded revolutions, and especially in Ukraine in the year 2014. Now, the proximate cause was Yanukovych had won another election, this time in 2010, 
the people that America had put in power before had failed miserably, Yushchenko and then his sometimes partner and sometimes rival, Yulia Tymoshenko, the gas princess, they called her. And she was the final candidate to lose to Yushchenko, pardon me, Yanukovych in 2010. And so then in uh, 2013, he was to sign a deal with the EU. It was not to join the EU, but it was a trade deal with the EU and sort of like an action plan toward eventual membership into the European Union, which, of course, you know, is kind of a conjunction between, you know, NATO and the EU are kind of expanded in, you know, tandem together. Um, in fact, one of the major reasons for NATO expansion was the Americans wanted to force the expansion of the EU. And they thought where the Germans and French are taking too long to bring new countries in, we'll just bring them into NATO first. And then, you know, uh, EU membership will be a fait accompli after that. Um, so those two things are very much, you know, kind of interrelated there. Um, but anyway, so Putin offers Yanukovych a better deal and he refuses to sign the deal. At that point, the people in the far west of the country, who are it's a very ethnically and politically divided nation, Ukraine, and the people in the far west, well, some of them, some of their more radical factions went out into the street to protest in the capital in Kiev and really came from all over the West to Kiev to protest. And it wasn't that they loved the EU so much, especially the radical right wing nationalists there, uh, some of whom were, you know, outright Nazis and the proud grandsons of Nazis who had participated in the Holocaust under German command during World War II. Um, it's not that they just, oh, wanted to be subordinate to the EU instead of Russia. It's just that they hate the Russians the most. And Yanukovych refusing to make the deal with the EU was a signal that he was going to make a deal with the Russians instead. And that was what they were really rioting against. And they did. They stayed out there all summer, from, um, pardon me, all winter long from November through February. And you had everyone's probably familiar with these pictures of uh, Chris Murphy and uh, John McCain, two senators, and Victoria Newland, who was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs, which is sort of like the ambassador to the EU, I guess. And they were all going there and palling around with the protesters in the Maidan Square, passing out sandwiches and cookies and standing on stage with a bunch of Hitler loving Nazis like Oleg Tannenbach and others. There's Chris Murphy and John McCain standing right there palling around with him. And you had, you know, the essentially a street putsch, a violent street putsch that was led in February of 2022 by right sector and Svoboda there, you know, Svoboda's militia is the C-14. And these were the guys who ended up, you know, essentially chasing the government out of town. And but the Americans and the Europeans had intervened and essentially had thought. In fact, there was video of a Russian, uh, pardon me, a German uh, official telling the Ukrainians Oh, man, I'm sorry. I don't want to misparaphrase the thing, but uh, I'll just say he was threatening the guy. You better sign this damn deal. And then the deal was that and there was a threat baked into that. Uh, I just don't want to, you know, misparaphrase because I don't remember closely enough, but there was definitely a threat in it. And then so he did sign the deal and the deal was he would pull his police back, but all the protesters would also pull back and then they would hold early elections. Well, the protesters didn't pull back. They just seized all the government buildings as soon as he pulled the police back, which was clearly the plan. And famously, um, Victoria Newland was leaked in a phone call from like two weeks before the coup 
And the coup came on uh, January, uh, pardon me, the February, the, the night of February the 21st, 22nd. And it was certainly more than a week. I think it was like 10 days, 10 to 14 days before the coup. The Russians, obviously, although we don't know this for sure, it could have been the Ukrainian government at that time, I guess, intercepted a phone call of Victoria Nuland on the phone with Gregory Pyatt plotting the coup and plotting who's going to take the shape of the government, uh, you know, who's going to take which place in the government uh, once the government falls. And, you know, uh, Pyatt, the ambassador to Ukraine, is saying, yeah, we got to midwife it. We've got to glue it. We got to make it sail. We got to do all this before the Russians can torpedo it, because you can bet that Putin, he's distracted by the Sochi Olympics now. But if you know, we we better get away with this in a very sneaky fashion, and then it'll be great, and we'll have gotten away with it. And then two weeks later, they went ahead and did the coup anyway. After being caught red-handed plotting it, they went ahead and did it anyway. And then it led to what you just referred to there. It was mass death. And the first thing that happened was um, the uh, new government, the first thing they did was outlaw Russian as an official language, which they rescinded that, but still, like talk about a declaration of culture war, you know? Uh, how about outlawing the speaking of Spanish in the American Southwest? Or, you know, or all, all any government documents or procedures being done in Spanish? Think you'd have a problem or not? You know, uh, that level of declaration of, of culture war. I mean, they did that in Puerto Rico a little while ago. We actually did an episode about that. So, yeah, it's, okay. it's pretty bad and it causes some revolutions. Absolutely. So, so, and that was just setting the tone, right? That's just right off the bat how we're going to, you know, start this whole thing off. Then uh, three former, four former presidents wrote a letter demanding that now is the chance to kick the Russians out of the Sevastopol naval base in Crimea. Now, it's a complicated thing, but just very quickly, the Crimean Peninsula had been bought and or sort of stolen from the Turks by Catherine the Great back in 1783, the same year America signed our peace with the British at the end of the Revolutionary War in the Treaty of Paris, Benjamin Franklin and John Jay and John Adams. Um, and um, four years before our constitution was even written, much less ratified. Um, then Khrushchev, and they, you know, I guess Britain had stolen it for a very little while in the mid 19th century or something, but it was Russian territory ever since then. Then Khrushchev, after Stalin died, gave it to Ukraine because they needed their support in order to rise to power to replace Stalin. But everybody was still answerable to the Kremlin anyway, as far as, you know, government entities go under the USSR. So it made little difference anyway. Um, it was just a heavily ethnic Russian a uh, little statelet, and there had been kind of controversy over, you know, the population there wanting to join Russia and and having disputes about this ever since the fall of the Soviet Union. But the so, the Russian Federation's position was just keep letting us lease our naval base of Sevastopol, and you can keep Crimea. We don't care. But then what happened was they're threatening to kick them out of their naval base. And there's even a quote from an interview. I can't remember who this was. I don't think it was Oliver Stone. It was, maybe he's talking to the BBC or something like that. But Putin says, geez, you know, we thought about how nice it would be to come down to Sevastopol to visit our NATO partners for the holidays. And we just thought that, nah, you know, it'd be better if we keep the base and you guys come and visit us. You know, sorry, we're keeping our base, <laughs> you know. 
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. So what happened was they called out the so-called little green men, which was just the Marines and the sailors of the Sevastopol Naval Base, came out and stood on street corners, and it was, you know, in what they call a coup de main, which there wasn't even a, one big battle. It was just one big takeover, and it was virtually bloodless. Like supposedly five people were killed, but I don't even know if that's even true. And I don't know if any of that is related to like soldier on soldier battle. I saw a clip of some. I feel Russian like a death from January 6th, like somebody had a heart attack and something. Like, cause, yeah. like unrelated to the actual violence. Yeah, and, and the, it could have been that there were partisans that shot at each other here or there or something. But it was absolutely less than 10. I mean, I think even the Wikipedia account was five, maybe six or something. But I saw footage of Russian soldiers firing over Ukrainian soldiers' heads and saying, you boys better turn around the other way. And they say, you know what? That's sound advice, and we're going to take it. Bye. And that was it. So it was essentially a bloodless coup uh, or, you know, a coup de main there as they took over um, the Crimean Peninsula. Then... You have what you were referring to there in that Waco massacre um, in Odessa, which was a bunch of leftists, presumably, I don't know, um, or at least, you know, pro-Russian types who, not that the Russian government is leftist, but there's, you know, a very like fascist and communist sort of divide still left in that country in a way. Well, well what, what I hear, what I read a lot is that the people in eastern Ukraine and like the Donbass region, parts of Odessa, they still kind of uh, associate themselves with like the old Soviet workers culture. So, I mean, they're I guess they're Marxists in that way where they kind of like, you know, have fathers and grandfathers who used to work in like Soviet steel mills and stuff like that. And that's where their affinity for that comes from. Um, sure. Probably kind of oversimplifying that. But and look around different. there, I mean, their real history there, Henry, is the communists in Ukrainian history fought against the Nazis. Yeah, of course. In this war. 
So you got, yeah, you got very hard feelings there. It ain't just Germans versus Russians. It's Reds versus Browns and this kind of stuff. Where, and, and the Holocaust, you know, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands or, uh, or more people were systematically murdered in Ukraine during that time. It's a hell of a place to be and a, and a lot of hard feelings left over. In fact, speaking of which, the Soviets lost the Russian military. I'm not sure, you know, the Soviet military, I'm not sure made up who all of what, but certainly the Russians identify with this. They lost 300,000 men defending Crimea from the Germans and Romanians who were trying to take it from them in World War II. So you think about what the West Point means to, to New Yorkers or what the Alamo means to Texans. And imagine if the Texans had lost 300,000 men defending San Antonio. Yeah, that's you better not ever mess with San Antonio, dude. You know what I mean? That's paid for in blood in ways that, you know, we can't really relate to. Uh, that's the Russians' emotional connection to that territory. But then what happened was uh, at this trade union building, a bunch of Nazis attacked and burned all these people to death. I'm not sure of the casualties at the end, but it was dozens of people were murdered in this arson fire and then, you know, were shot and beaten. And, um, you know, there were people who like jumped out the window and then there's footage of the guys shooting at them while they're falling, this kind of thing. Um, and this was a huge provocation. So then the people of the East said, well, if you guys can overthrow and occupy government buildings and overthrow a democratically elected government, well, we can occupy government buildings and refuse to accept the rule of your new, you know, coup d'etat junta. So screw you. And then what happened was the new Ukrainian president declared the war on terrorism and invaded the east of his own country with airstrikes and heavy armor and full scale war against them. And at that point, the Russians did not invade but they did send special operations forces across the border like to d support the Ukrainians with deniable forces, but to make sure that the pro-Russian speakers and pro-Russian leaning people in the Donbass were not conquered. But I'll note that in 2015, or pardon me, in 2014 uh, and 2015, or maybe it was just in 2015, the um, Ukrainian, uh, the Donbass had voted uh, Luhansk and Donetsk had voted to join the Russian Federation, not just independence, but they voted they wanted to join Russia. And Putin told them no. He had a peace deal that he was trying to work with the British and pardon me, with the Germans and the French, uh, where the Donbass would have autonomy and like strong federalism, but would remain within Ukraine. And, you know, even as recently as April of this year in the middle of the war, he said, look, we'll get we'll withdraw if you'll promise not to join NATO and if you'll recognize the peace deals that promised autonomy and all this. Um, that's been their position. Um, but now, so what happened was there's horrible fighting, about 10,000 people killed in, in 2014 and into 15. And they reached the Minsk One deal at the end of 2014, which succeeded in calling back the airstrikes and some of the heavier equipment. But then the fighting was still really bad until I mean, you know, essentially full scale fighting, I guess, um, until early 2015. And that's when they signed the Minsk II peace deal. Now, this is the Germans and the French signing along with the Ukrainians and the Russians. And then where America then after the fact uh, under Obama 
ratifies it and along with the United Nations essentially signs on to it and says we'll support this. But they didn't support it. The deal said they'd give strong federalism to the Far East and, you know, give them an economic uh, rebuilding package and all this kind of stuff. And um, and then they wouldn't do that. They kept the fighting going. And the Americans who had all the influence were not leaning on them to stop the fighting. And, you know, they can blame it all on the Russians all they want. But I just don't think that holds up. And in fact, you know, Poroshenko, the previous president, had promised to make peace and couldn't follow through on it. Or I don't know if he ever really tried. Um, but when Zelensky was inaugurated, you know, or elected in 2019, he was elected on a peace platform. We are going to work this thing out. And evidently he meant it. Um, um, there's interviews of him saying like, yeah, like, let them speak their Russian. Like, what's the problem here? Like, why, why are we antagonizing? He only them? learned Ukrainian recently. He was the Russian yeah. only speaker himself. Um, yeah, I mean, mo- I think most Jews in, in Ukraine are mostly Russian speaking. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess it depends where you're from, but um, I guess, yeah, I'm, I'm, that's, that's definitely an overgeneralization right there. But, um, like in New York city, all the Ukrainian Jews, who migrated from Ukraine, most of them are Russian speaking. You know, they they yeah. call themselves Russian and then like, oh, like I'm from Odessa or somewhere. Um, but yeah, my wife's family's from Odessa and they call themselves Ukrainians, but they only speak Russian. And which part of that is a legacy of communism where, you know, Stalin imported a lot of Russians into Ukraine and then also, you know, waged his own battle against, you know, his communist battle against Ukrainian culture and language. So mm-hmm. especially in the east of the country, you could only learn Russian in school and all those kinds of things. So, you know, that's the the back history there. But anyways, um, there's footage you should see, maybe you've seen, of Zelensky confronting C-14 Nazis on the Eastern Yeah. Front. And he says, listen, guys, I need you to pull back to what you call it town back here because I'm working on a deal and you're messing me up. And they essentially tell him, screw you. We don't have to do what you say. And they're not anybody, too. They're not officers. They're just like private specialist enlisted men, nobodies, you know, militia guys, really, from the Azov Battalion or ADAR Battalion or something like that. I don't even know if they're really army fighters at all. Um, I think they're just like C-14, um, you know, thugs, basically. And they're telling the president of Ukraine, can't tell us what to do, dude. And he goes, hey, listen, I'm not a loser. That's everybody's key word if you want to search this. I'm not a loser. I'm 41 years old. I'm the president of this country. And you'll not really talk to that? me like that. <laughs> and there's like, yeah, well, what? What are you going to do about it? And he's like, nothing. Stamp my feet and pout and then go home. But the thing is, and this was the case that, um, oh, what's his name made? Uh, the husband of Katrina Vanden Wavel, um, who, uh, who died recently, the Russia expert guy. I'm sorry, I forgot his name off the top of my brain. Um, he just said, you know, even back then, you know, this government needs our support against these Nazis. You know, there were times where they said we wanted to make peace in the East and then the Nazis ringed the parliament building and said, we overthrew the last government, we'll overthrow you. We're not making peace, we're fighting. And then the government was like, oh, geez, how much are we even the parliament here when we're at the mercy of a bunch of mob of Nazis out in the street? You know, they needed America to come in, of course, the ones who got them into this mess, and at least help them to eliminate the worst leaders of their Nazi opposition and put them in a situation where they could achieve the peace deal. But that wasn't what the Americans wanted. And you know what, Henry, I know you guys will both love this. Um, and your audience, I mean, just 
you got to look into this, man. You'll just get a kick out. I swear. It's incredible to read. Um, it's by the Rand Corporation from 2019. And I'm sorry. Overextending Russia? Yeah. On, uh, yeah. Extending paper, yeah. Russia. Yeah, there's there's a summary. And even if you click that summary, there's a link that's just like a PDF of the same summary kind of. But there's a long version, too. That's like 10,000 words or something more. It's a huge study. Of it's like a 200 page document. Them. I'm sorry. It's like a 200 page doc. It's like 200 pages or so. And then it goes. Yeah, it's like pretty much like everything that's happened over the past. I don't know, ten, decade, you know, in terms of like revolutions in Kazakhstan and aid to Ukraine. And and um, when I first read that, and I think I first heard about that from a Moon of Alabama article, and I was like, uh-huh. eh, they're just making too much out of this Rand Corporation document. Rand writes all sorts of crazy things. And then, you know, looking back at it, I'm like, hmm, that really did seem to uh, kind of reflect the general policy over time. Yep. And it goes to show the mindset here that like, Okay, so what we could do, one thing we could do, we could arm up Ukraine so bad that Russia invades. And that would be an enormous cost to Russia and really hurt their reputation. And that would help us get our European friends on board for those sanctions we want. Now, on the other hand, a lot of Ukrainians would die and it would cost us a lot of money and probably be bad for our prestige too and whatever. But, you know, anyway, just so you know, that option's out there. But they're not saying like, oh my God, Whatever we got to do, we want to definitely not provoke a conflict with Russia. They're saying whatever we can do to burden Russia, anything we can do from just trying to spike the oil price to trying to make closer relationships with countries in Central Asia to we could pour a bunch of arms into al-Qaeda fighters in Syria. We could pour a bunch of arms into the, you know, uh, radical right-wing forces in Ukraine, which they warn have uncontrollable, extremely dangerous Nazi-type elements embedded within them. But anyway, we could, you know what we could do? Now, this is very high risk, but we could try again to do a coup in Belarus. And that would really piss the Russians off and make them have to spend money and have problems. Wasn't it Lyle Goldstein who wrote that? That was probably one of the, the... The straws that can't broke the camel's right. uh, back. Or he told me that on my show wide. anyway. Yeah, I asked him like, what changed? Yeah, I think I must have been heard messing him on with the show. him all this time. He said that was it. It was the it was the uh, coup attempted coup in Belarus in 2020. That was the final straw. And remember now, they were trying a coup. I mean, pretty obviously, I think there's a little surmise here, but pretty obvious is the Americans and their Turkish friends tried to overthrow the government of Kazakhstan in January of this year, right yeah. in the run-up to this war, when they're threatening that this Putin guy's a madman and could invade Ukraine at any time, and then they're still messing with him, doing everything they can. Yeah, we were covering Pretty that, amazing. and we were, we were, I was honestly giving the U.S. the benefit of the doubt, or I was, it's like, yeah, well, you know, there is kind of an internal thing between Nazarbayev and, you know, the uh, to, uh, I mean, I'm forgetting his name starts with a T, um, but his, you know, the heir apparent and, um, you know, maybe this just really is just some kind of organic, uh, infighting type thing that's going on. But, um, kind of looking back at it, I, I, I feel like I was initially wrong in it. I mean, it was not just like what I would expect for typical jihadi type antics. Or well, the like guy's head went- just got chopped off. There are cops who are getting beheaded. Well, I mean, which, you know, I think that's probably like 
to spread fear, multiplier effect, you know, uh, but they're seizing banks and airstrips and, you know, very, you know, radio stations and very important um, infrastructure points right away. So there's like, oh, look, a riot. And then these guys are like seizing six banks and a, a radio station at the same time. Yeah. Like, yeah, that looks like somebody's, um, you know, intelligence services coordinating that. That ain't just the NED. That's probably Turkish intelligence, you know, working with the CIA to do something like that, something like that, something along those lines anyway. Um, but it, but it does go to show if, if people will read that, like, I don't know, we should do deeper research and find if, if people can really verify that, like, yep, the Biden administration was definitely reading that report and liked it. The, the CIA and the State Department said, thank you so much, Rand, for this great advice. And they've been implementing it ever since. I'd like to see that really nailed down. But I mean, it also could be that they're given the same kind of advice that the CIA would have been given anyway. These are their weak points. This is what we want to do. Um, you know, again, the title is extending Russia as in overextending Russia, giving them too many things to do, too many expenses, keeping them off balance uh, and this kind of deal. And all throughout the thing, the language is just absolutely cynical about the people that could get killed, about the danger that we could get in and coming to a nuclear confrontation with Russia. Oftentimes they come up with, you know, really provocative policies. And then the next paragraph says, hey, by the way, I mean, if you did that, it would really be bad and it would affect us terribly in these ways. So we're just saying, but we're just saying, but it's like, yeah, you're just really. And then when you read through it, you go, wow, apparently the Biden administration didn't read any of the disclaimers because they just went with all of the craziest stuff in there and didn't, you know, evidently think twice about it. That sure is how it looks like. Um, but now, so Trump, I don't want to like uh, acquit Trump here by omission. Real quickly, he was framed for colluding with Russia to steal the election, which Russia didn't even steal, in which there was no collusion, and the whole thing was a hoax. Every single last little bit of that Russiagate thing was a put on, begun by the Democrats and their friends in the FBI counterintelligence division, and then with later support from the CIA coming in. And they framed up a major party presidential nominee for president of the United States it was absolutely incredible. And then after he won the election anyway, they kept it up for another three years. And every bit of it was a lie. as the biggest scandal since, I don't know what, they lied us into whichever war you pick that you hate they lied us into, all of them. Um, it's absolutely incredible what they did. It's just, it's a one shade less than just shooting them in the head in Dallas. I mean, it's just incredible to think that they would dare to take on the elected president of the United States in the way that they did. And why did they do it? Because he said he wanted to get along with Russia. Did he have a real plan for getting along with Russia? Not really. But you know what? I absolutely believe him when he said he talked to Henry Kissinger. And he said, Henry Kissinger, I think we should be friends with Russia and balance against China. And Henry Kissinger said, yes, that's just very smart, Donald. That's what I think, too. And he was like, <laughs> see, I'm a brilliant genius. Henry Kissinger says I'm right, which is what Henry Kissinger thinks, by the way, that America should be softer on Russia and split them against China. The same way he split China against the Soviet Union back when the Soviet Union was the stronger power. Right. And so that is real politic uh, in the Rockefeller model. Right. So that's all Donald Trump thought he was doing. But it was just, you know, the Democrats were just especially the, the Barack Obama team, including Hillary Clinton, 
we're just all in on this Cold War with Russia and the military industrial complex and the FBI and the CIA. They didn't want to hear this stuff about, oh, Ken, Henry Kissinger disagrees. They got money to make here. They got a whole racket to invest in here in this new Cold War with Russia. They didn't want to see anything short circuiting it. And plus, it just made a convenient narrative, they thought, I guess, to frame up Trump to keep him from winning in the first place that he was somehow serving a foreign power. But see, they falsely assumed that Americans hate Russia the way that they do. So they were like, they just thought if they just said Russia, 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 that everybody would panic. But only Democrats panicked. Everybody else was like, that's stupid. He's a billionaire real estate tycoon from New York City. I'm supposed to believe he's some kind of commie rat trader plant or whatever. It just doesn't make sense. Not that the Russians are commies anymore, but still. If And by the way, so if they're not commies and he's not a commie, then what interest would he have in serving them instead of just serving himself? We're talking about Donald Trump here. If he's going to serve anybody but himself, you'd think it'd be his own country that he claims to be a patriot of. It's certainly not going to be some country across the ocean when he, he has no reason whatsoever to be loyal to them. It's not the 1930s when there were communists in America, when there, you know, when there was an actual communist party and there That's right. was. Right. Uh, legitimate kind of camaraderie with the Soviets in Russia. And even then we're um, talking about very small numbers of people. Yeah, no not a large number like, of people. Yeah, they were really get away with taking over anything or anything like that. But yeah, at least there was, as you're saying, there was such a thing as Americans who were loyal to the USSR because of ideological commitment to communism and all that. There's just nothing like that in America today. There's no partisans of Vladimir Putin outside of 4chan. I don't even think over there you got more than just a few kids like mouth and off being funny. There's no American pro-Russian movement, even among Russian expats. They're mostly all a bunch of hawks when they're active at all. Um, so look, Trump responds to these accusations of treason by doubling down support for Ukraine and pouring in a bunch of weapons that Barack Obama was scared to give him because one, he was afraid of all the Nazis in the Ukrainian uh, armed forces and related militias. And he was afraid of provoking too much of a response from the Russians. And there were a lot of hawks during the Obama years urging him to do more. Trump comes in, wants to get along with Russia, does exactly the opposite, starts pouring weapons into Ukraine. <clears throat> and sanctioning and as, them. <laughs> as crazy as it sounds, you guys will remember, he was impeached for temporarily holding up one of these arms deals. And he was saying, you know, I want you guys to investigate Joe and Hunter Biden. Uh, or I want to know what's going on with those investigations. And of course, Hunter Biden was involved in this scandal because he was the son of the vice president who had overthrown the government in 2014. And the leadership of Burisma was close, the gas company was close with the government America had overthrown. So this was their way of protecting themselves from the new regime was by hiring the vice president's son. They also hired Kofor Black, the former CIA counterterrorism officer. And... Um, there's actually a lady, I think from the State Department, who renounced her American citizenship so she could go get Ukrainian citizenship so she could run their central bank for a few years. And then she came back to America with all her stolen money. And she was like some senator's daughter or some kind of crazy thing like that. I need to nail that one down. I, I write that down. Uh, I know there's something there. I just forgot. Um, uh, I don't know if it was a senator's daughter, but something like that. Um, but uh, anyway, so um, these arms deals essentially were for Javelin anti-tank missiles and this kind of thing mostly um, to send into Ukraine, which was a major provocation. Trump also continued to um, 
uh, or, uh, to expand NATO. He brought in Montenegro and Northern Macedonia. You might remember Tucker Carlson goes, man, why are we doing this? Why would we bring in Northern Macedonia? And Trump's like, hell, I don't know. <laughs> and then Carlson kind of lets him slide. They're like, dude, you're the president right now, you know. <laughs> but uh, and um, and then he allowed. I look, either he didn't control his Pentagon at all, or he approved these massive escalations of American readiness uh, exercises, including you know huge war games with our European partners, uh, as they call them, the NATO partners in Europe, but also endless exercises in the Black Sea and uh, Baltic Sea, and including the Sea of Ostok, which is over there in the far east, uh, near the city of Vladivostok, north of North That's Korea. a very important sea to American interest, by the way. Yes, of course. It's an um, American lake. You can tell the this by Sea of at Ostok. It. Yeah, that's right. Is, uh, uh, yeah, the one that you've never heard of before. But I got I to gotta tell you where it is. I'm willing to die for the Sea of Ostok. Are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm willing to kill them all for the Sea of Ostok. Um, and so, look, I mean, what they do is they fly American heavy bombers, including P-52s, right up to 12 and a half miles off of Russia's shore. It's like, hey, it's perfectly legal, dude. We're in international airspace, international waters, this and that. But what are they doing? They're essentially practicing a nuclear first strike on Russia, forcing them to turn on their defensive radars so they can better plot how to attack their defensive radars first and all of the rest of these things. And they're just supposed to sit there and take it. You know, when I was a kid, there was this guy named uh, Bill Clemens. I think it was Bill. Stephen Clemens ran against Ann Richards for governor of Texas. And then he got in trouble because some reporter, I think, at Texas Monthly ratted on him for telling a joke where he said the bad bad weather is. Oh, they were like waiting out the rain. And he said, bad weather is a lot like rape. You can't do nothing about it. Might as well just sit back and enjoy it. Something like that. So (laughs) that's America's attitude toward the Russians. Right. They're like, whatever it is that we can dish out, you can take it. And we're sure that you're never going to react and get mad. Certainly not mad enough to do anything about it. Like Henry. If I started smacking you in the face a bunch of times and just said, ah, come on, you're not going to punch me. (laughs) Like, (laughs) how long would we expect that, you know, scenario to last before something happens to change the situation? You know what I mean? Um, it's like that video online, I, and I think I stole this from you, so I need to give you credit. I think I heard you say it, and I plagiarized it. But there's a video of um, this this uh, couple fighting over a snow, over uh, snow going into somebody's yard, and oh, uh, right, they right. start yelling at this guy who has a gun, and they're like, "Come on, pussy, what are you gonna do? Just shoot us, shoot us! Come on, what are you gonna do? We're gonna make your life hell living here." And um, they're definitely provoking this man to shoot them, which he does shoot. And um, not that it's right that this man murdered these two people. It's not, it's absolutely wrong, and he committed murder. He then killed himself. But um, it, you know, he was he was without a doubt provoked to shoot them, and, and that's how I see the, the the situation right now. Like I don't agree, and, and now we're often called uh, Russian apologists or Putin apologists. Um, or uh, genocide deniers. I don't know why we're called that, but it's uh, you know every single name in the book. In terms of just saying that you're being soft on Russia and you're not, um, 
you know, taking this you know whole situation seriously and you support the war. We don't support the war at all, neither of us. And, and um, you know, we think it was obviously a wrong thing to do. And there is definitely other things that Putin could have done uh, in terms of escalation without invading a country, which is which is, of course, outrageous. But um, it's um, it's just where we're at right now. Like there's no you're not allowed, you're not allowed to have any type of nuance. And I think there really is a concerned effort, concerted effort to make any kind of rational conversation on on Russia, Ukraine, to just make it an, as uh, problematic as as possible or uncomfortable as possible. Yeah. So if you just think outside of like kind of the conditional uh, wisdom, then you're all you're automatically just labeled as as somebody who's a, a pro Putin. Uh, and look, anybody who Russia could rub a couple of brain cells together ought to be able to tell they're like, oh, when these guys call names all day because they don't have an argument. You know, I haven't heard yeah. anyone. I haven't heard anyone talk about why Putin is great or Putin is right or any of that kind of stuff at all. I mean, I guess I met one guy who thought that he really had no choice but to invade. But even that guy, I don't think, was like, oh, just big Putin fanboy. He just like had logically worked himself into a corner, I guess, or whatever. But he wasn't just slavish devotion to Putin's cause here or anything like that. He was just saying, man. Even you admit that America did everything to provoke this. So, you know, that kind of. I mean, of, even even Russians it, in Russia don't fully support it either. I mean, the moment that he just uh, said that he's going to do a um, a partial mobilization, we got people over here breaking their legs and stuff because they don't actually want to go through and do the actual war. So even the people, people in Russia aren't yet, like, fully supportive of it. So. Of course. Yeah, there have been people in Russia who've been opposed to it all along. Um mm-hmm. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. But look, um, I mean, the reality is, well, look, go back 20 years ago, the end of September 2002, everybody knew America has to attack Iraq. If we don't attack them, they're going to attack us first. 
nuclear weapons or chemical weapons. They can give them to Osama bin Laden and these crazy terrorists who are built on building an Islamo-fascist caliphate. And then they're going to come here and enslave us under Sharia law. And Saddam Hussein is going to lead it all if we don't stop him. And if you don't want to stop him, then it's not going to listen to you at all because obviously you're either a communist, you hate America, or you're just a weakling and a coward who refuses to be a man and defend your country. What's the matter with you? You don't love your country? Because all of us who do know that this is what has to be done. As crazy as that sounds, they pulled it off. They told that story for a year and a half and then launched an aggressive war against that helpless, pathetic third world country that didn't mean us any harm whatsoever and didn't have any ability to harm us whatsoever. Had no relationship with those who harmed us whatsoever. They might as well have attacked Uruguay for as much as Iraq had anything to do with September 11th. They were getting away with murder and they just straight up built this narrative and people that you know and care about fell for it. We I fell for it, this. but I was I was 11, so I I, I forgive myself. <laughs> you have an excuse. <laughs> <laughs> Look, um, my uh, I have a family member who I told him, listen, I'm not like going to give you a whole lecture on this. You're only seven years old, but I'm going to tell you this right now: you don't start a war. And that's what we're doing right now. We're starting a war. And that makes us the bad guys. Like when the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor. And there are a lot of people who think this is the right thing to do because they think that Iraq did September 11th, but they didn't. And that's it. That's all you need to know. Iraq didn't attack us. We're the ones attacking them. And that's wrong. You don't do that. And then that's it. Okay, let's go to the movies. Whatever. He's seven years old. <laughs> now, same kid asked me later. Hey, all of my teachers and all of my friends' parents, and everyone at church, and everyone I know says that George Bush is a great president, and this war is great. And then I love this kid. What's wrong with them, Uncle Scott? <laughs> right? And, and what I told him was, look, essentially, they don't know the first goddamn thing about it. That's what's wrong with them. They don't know anything about Iraq. They don't know anything about Saddam Hussein. They don't even know which way is the Middle East from here. All they know is they like George Bush. They trust George Bush. He's a Methodist, don't you know, which makes him sort of like them, unlike that Bill Clinton, the last guy. So he's the side we're on. And so the things he does are right. And the threats that he confronts must be threats or else why would he be confronting them, right? And that's why your teachers and your minister and your uh, friends' parents are support Bush is because essentially they're stupid. And instead of being adults, they've outsourced their thinking and their decision-making to evil men. And like someday they'll out. live to regret it. But that's the answer. It's the like same thing here. And they do it to you all the time about who you're supposed to hate and fear all the time. When I was a kid, I was 15 years old or 16 years old. When they framed up David Koresh as Saddam Hussein, 
He's a madman. He's armed to the teeth with illegal weapons. And he's abusing his own people. And we've got to go in there and save him. But we're talking about a house in the prairie in Waco, Texas. And they turn it into a foreign nation. They turn a house into a compound. They turn the pantry into a bunker. And they turn a bunch of semi-automatic rifles into weapons of war. And then they launched an attack, an invasion, and slaughtered these people. And you know what the American people said? Awesome. Finally. What took you so long? And I was so sick of giving those inspectors more time. I want to see some fire and some bodies. I'm trying to watch the prices right. And David Koresh is preempting it every day. And I was sacking groceries at the time. The women of Northwest Austin, the Karens, as they would call them now, the Karens of Northwest Austin, they wanted the Branch Davidians dead yesterday. Now, go in there and end it. What are they waiting for? End it. End it. Because they're trying to watch one life to live. And because that David Koresh, why he disrespected the police. And the police say that he says he's Jesus. So we say, nail him to a tree. TV says, oh, you know who's the most dangerous threat in America? Poor black people fighting over the cocaine trade in South L.A. Yes, they're entirely geographically limited to South L.A. And yes, the cocaine that they're fighting about is 100% supplied, 100% supplied by the United States government. Uh, but anyway, they're going to come and kill you if we don't pass a bunch of gun control laws and take your guns. If we don't pass a bunch of drug laws and kick in your door. Because, oh, the blacks of South L.A., the Crips and the Bloods, they built that up. And, hey, it was pretty bad if you lived in South L.A. But they built that up like they were going to take over the country. And Joe Biden and his buddies passed 100 new laws over it, hired a million new cops. Cracked 10,000 skulls. More than that. They can just demonize anyone they want. They can go after anyone they want. You know, Dave Smith brought it to me the other day. Remember when Trump wanted to get out of Syria? And they go, oh no, you're abandoning the Kurds. And all of a sudden, somehow, they got 100 million American minor birds to go, oh, the Kurds, the Kurds, the Kurds. You can't end a war or else the Kurds will die. When they don't know what a Kurd is, they don't know the first thing about what a Kurd is or how many times America has built up and then backstabbed and betrayed the Kurds. They don't know anything about it at all other than they've been instructed by TV of who to hate and who to fear and what to be upset about. And it works on the Democrats just as well as the Republicans. It just depends on who's in power. You know, obviously the Democrats are more likely to go along with a Democratic hoax and Republicans are Republican hoax. But there's plenty of bleed over, too. There's plenty of Republicans right now who are praising Joe Biden for finally being tough enough on Russia and China. If only he would do more, they say. Yeah, that's the kind of opposition we need, you know. Well, what I'll hear. um, Oh, I'm sorry. I feel like we're coming full circle on the beginning of the conversation that we had here Uh, at the top of, uh, of our chat. We were talking about how, you know, Dave comes on Joe Rogan's show 
And, you know, Henry, you were saying that a friend of yours is like immediately convinced to be anti-war because the right voice, you know, mm -hmm. uh, uh, told him so. Uh, Scott, you even recounted a tale of the same thing. And, and in this in this case, it's it was a positive, right? Like it, the message was positive and, and the, you know, the outcome was positive. But that same power in in the the, the blind following of people that you respect uh, or that you believe is on your side has this dirty, ugly other side to it. And for the last at least five to ten minutes, you've you've gone on a on a whirlwind uh, showing us how, you know, that exact power can be used for very nefarious purposes. Yeah. It's very regretful. And look, I mean, my theory has always been that, look, if people believe any damn lie, then it ought to be easy to tell them the truth then. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I can back up my claims. My claims make sense. And if I forget, it's just because I smoke too much weed, not because I can't remember which <laughs> lie I told. Like, these guys always are getting in trouble, you know? Um, it's the COVID brain, man. Um, but... Uh, Ultimately, you know, I had a cab driver friend tell me long ago, he goes, you know, Scott, you do just you just beat everybody over the head with all these facts, fact, 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 fact. Like, I can't remember all of this stuff. I don't know what the hell you're trying to teach me, man. You have to keep in mind at the end of the argument, the point has got to be that people get your point. You don't want people to just think, wow, that guy Scott knows a lot of stuff. That wasn't the point. The point was they're supposed to hate and fear the government. They're supposed to never believe them again. Right. They're supposed to film a cop. They're supposed to oppose a war. So the impression you got to leave them is not, oh, Horton knows a lot and can recite facts a lot. The impression you got to leave them is, I don't know if I can memorize all of that shit, but that guy is right that this shit is wrong. This is not what we're supposed to be doing. And I kind of thought maybe we were, but now I see. Uh uh. You got to give them that chance to change their mind. You got to make them feel like it's okay to give them the impression that it won't hurt too bad to admit that. Yeah, actually, I think that probably sounds closer to the truth than what I've been thinking. Cause at the end of the day, that's what counts as the impression. You know, in fact, I'll tell you another story like this. I went on Tim pool and I said, nah, man, come on. China ain't shit. They ain't doing nothing, you know? And they were like, what? China, 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 China. And I argued, I did my best, I don't know. But then uh, Pete Quinones went on there. And Pete Quinones, like, first of all, he just has a bunch of upper body strength and kind of looks like a tough guy in a way that I don't, you know? <laughs> um, and But then secondly, like, he's been moving pretty far to the right lately. And so his point on the Tim Pool show was, I hate communists. I hate him, I hate him, I hate him. I want to drown him in something shallow and like watch him inhale the water and just, blah, right? And so that was what he said for like an hour and 45 minutes. Leftists, socialists, communists, I'll kill them all, let me at them, right? Then in the last 15 minutes of the show, he goes, oh, China ain't shit. <laughs> and they go, oh, really? What makes you say that? And he goes, well, I mean, come on. They got to import all their raw materials. They got no oil. They're surrounded by all these people who hate and fear them. They got 15 nations in all directions they got to deal with. And 
no rivers from east to west. And he's just going on about their bubble economy and their debt to earning ratio and just everything. China, they ain't shit. But the, the thing least is, amount of he, arable land in the world. Yeah, exactly. The Gobi Desert. I mean, what the hell are you going to do with that? Um, they're trying so, to make it green is what they're trying to do. <laughs> yeah, well, good luck with that. Fail. But so the point <laughs> is that, that, like, quite frankly, I helped Pete with his answer. You know, we knew he was going on there. And, like, I don't mm -hmm. think he'll mind if I'm squilling on him a little bit. He basically said the same thing as me. I talked with him about what to say when it comes up. But the point was, is... They didn't know me from Adam, by the way. Tim Pool didn't know who's Scott Horton from antiwar.com, which who does? I, I'm not saying he, whatever. I, why would he? he? Just someone had said, oh, you should have this guy on. So he was like, oh, okay. But like, there was no reason that he had to take me especially seriously or anything or for his audience too. Um, but Pete succeeded where I failed in just proving that he's not here to carry water for the Reds and he ain't naive about Chinese power. It's just that he feels like he could beat up China by himself because really they ain't shit. And and he's a good right wing anti-communist and he could just anti-communist them to death alone. Right. And and then they're willing to hear it from him. Wow. Is it really right that China ain't shit? This guy, Pete, sure seems convinced. And then what's he do? Pete is quoting David Stockman, Ronald Reagan's budget director, the most capitalist man in the world. And David Stockman is going, China ain't shit. China, he doesn't even call it China. He calls it the China Ponzi. That's the name of the Chinese nation state to David Stockman. Oh, the great Chinese Ponzi that's sure to completely unravel any day now. Blah, blah, blah. Get the hell away from me with this BS. That's who you need to hear from. It's the impression that counts. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the social psychology that counts. Maybe I look too much like a leftist. I don't know. I need to do some more push-ups and stuff, and then I can. <laughs> well, let's talk about how great Mal was. <laughs> talk about how great what? Mal was. Oh, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, this is what I tried to tell Tim Pool. I think I told him that, look, man, yes, it's still the red flag, but you got to understand, this is the right wing of the Communist Party. You know, Mao and the Gang of Four, they're dead and gone. This is Deng Xiaoping's legacy which is forget Marxism, man. Well, we're tired of starving to death by the tens of millions. We're going to go ahead and re-legalize property ownership and trade. That's it. To get rich is glorious. And it took them from about 79 to 89 to even just shake the cobwebs. And then from 89 to 99 to turn a podunk little straw hut village into a megalopolis the size of Houston, Texas in Shanghai and it took them another, you know, 10 years after that to double it in size again and double it again. in another 10 years after that is the greatest increase in the standard of living for the most people anywhere in history ever. And it's because the communist party of China did not relinquish power, but they did abolish and abandon communism. It is absolutely still a one party dictatorship, but it ain't Marxist economics. If it was, they'd still be starving. You know, it was Milton Friedman's economics that they adopted, right? What we call in America a quasi-free market, right? That's what they have. Um, and so, you know, for good and for ill. But so that does mean that they're a rising power compared to what they were before. That doesn't make them a danger to America. And if anybody thinks, I mean, look, I'll give the right-wing hawks credit. 
that, hey, at least China exists on the map, huh? That's better than the Islamo-fascist caliphate that was just a damned lie of their ridiculous propaganda for 20 years. I mean, until, you know, Bush and Obama conspired to create it for them for only three years and then destroy it again, but that doesn't count. I'm talking about the the one that Glenn Beck and Sean Hannity threatened us with all through the Bush and Obama years. Never existed. The whole thing was fake. Hey, China does have a Navy, but it's not sailing it this sucks. way. And it's <laughs> it not sucks. headed toward Tokyo either. I mean, even on the Taiwan thing, people build up Taiwan like it's a sovereign nation, but it ain't. I mean, did you have a panic attack when China took over Hong Kong? Or you said, you know, when, when Britain gave it back? I was a little nervous. Did you go, yeah, well... <laughs> yeah, it sucks for them, but it, you know. yeah, we're going to go to war if China doesn't get out of Tibet or we're just going to keep clucking our tongues. But somehow we're going to go to nuclear war over Taiwan. When again, it's just another part of China. And it's been American policy for 50 years that's part of China. And even though American policy has been, geez, we really prefer it if you don't invade and take it by force. Worst case scenario, if they did that, that doesn't mean that they're going to Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia and Burma and Pakistan and outer Mongolia and North and South Korea and Japan and Australia. You know, it doesn't mean that they're a threat to every one of their neighbors. We're talking about a renegade province. That's what America would call if it was an American state that broke away. It'd be a state that's going to be reabsorbed one day. And can you imagine an American state seceding from the union somehow and getting away with it for a time? And then the Chinese come and say, if you retake Florida by force, <laughs> we will take Florida's side <laughs> against you in a nuclear war. When, no, man, we stole Florida from the people who lived there back 200 years ago, and we're getting it back one way or the other, would be American policy. And it's no different here. It's America butting in. Look, when America told China, hey, you better not try to take Taiwan by force, they didn't have any force to take it with. It's pretty easy. It's like me telling you, you better not like steal my French fries. Well, you're not anywhere near me to steal my <laughs> French fries right now. It's a pretty empty warning, you know? Right now, if we try to go to war over Taiwan, we lose. You know, you can even see the war party admit that, you know what, we can't sail our Navy anywhere near China in the event of a confrontation. They'll sink our battleships, they'll sink our carriers. Israel gave them the plans for our sea skimming supersonic cruise missiles. So which have a longer range than our F-18s do. Check and mate. That's it. So then you know what they say? They go, well, we just need to build a giant fleet of B-1 bombers. And we'll just take them from the air then. In other words, they're admitting to you the U.S. Navy is absolutely worthless and obsolete in a fight with the Chinese other than our subs nuking them to death. But in terms of any like actual battle at sea, we can't get anywhere near them. We'll lose all our sailors to the bottom. Well, going back to the theme of your book, it's the, the scariest thing about it right now is that, man, I was so when the war started in February, the, when Russia invaded Ukraine, you know, I was very I was paranoid, borderline paranoid for a while that I'm like, man, we're all going to die. I mean, I live in New York, so I'm, I'm a target. There's no there's no escaping it for me. Um, I was like, maybe I should start prepping and, and storing up food supplies. But I'm like, what does that matter? Like, I live in the most populated metropolitan area in the United States. There's no chance. Don't even waste your money on 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 prepping and things like that. Danny, on the other hand, might be fine. He's in Puerto Rico. But <laughs> I'm kind of sure that would be some kind of uh, 
crazy scenario, the rest of the world being nuked and Puerto Rico being one of the main bastions of life. Um, Scott, in Austin, I don't know. I think you're I think you're probably screwed if there's a nuclear war. You're, I don't think it's we have a- lasting. But I was borderline paranoid. But now I find myself kind of like living with the fear and like a little bit more comfort, which is a problem in itself because it's been going on for so long. And um, this the most recent escalations uh, in, in the conflict, I guess, one being the formal annexation of Donetsk and Luhansk and not just not just at areas in the in the Donbass, but uh, in Kherson and Zaporozhye uh, as well. I mean, I guess in I don't think really anyone argues that these were essentially bogus referendums and elections, but, um, you know, they happened anyway, and, and Russia is going to annex them. And I guess I don't know if this Nord Stream pipeline business was a response to, you know, these annexations or what, but um, it's certainly the fact that their pipelines being sabotaged um, it just I don't know what like how else can this escalate now like how it's like my it's it's hard for me to see like the light in the tunnel in terms of this turning out not being just a horrible catastrophe um you know what do you think about the most recent um the the Nord Stream one uh sabotage well I mean I don't think anybody knows who did it for sure it seems pretty likely it was the Americans uh they seem to have the most motive to do so um Look, I don't see a lot of off-ramps in the sense that Joe Biden's position is extremely intransigent. You know, the Russians absolutely must not be allowed to prevail here. Whereas the Russians' position is that they absolutely must and that nothing less than victory is satisfactory. And, you know, evidently they're prepared to escalate all the way to full-scale war if it comes down to it. Um to call in their entire military to go in and occupy that land if they have to. Uh, It may come to that. You know, the most optimistic take as far as like why to not worry about nuclear war that I've heard was the Russians are going to win this conventionally soon enough that the Americans will just have to turn tail and leave the same way we left Iraq and Afghanistan and the rest that like, well, we got these people into bad trouble. And now we're going because there's nothing else we can do. Because the only alternative at that point is to send in the Marines. Are you really going to send in the Marines? You know, I mean, look how far away we're talking. How are you going to get them there? You going to turn the Black Sea into a war zone? Are you going to ship them on trains across Germany and Poland and end up dragging all our NATO allies into a full-scale war with Russia, sending American troops to go and fight the Russians in actual combat on the ground in Ukraine? I have to think that even, you know, insane New York and D.C. opinion would be overwhelmed by American opinion at that point. Now, if there's something short of that that could lead to nuclear war, you know, I wouldn't deny it. I don't know. I mean, you just mentioned how Putin is now annexing these areas and including Kherson and Zaporozhye. So this is a huge swath of the eastern part of the country and including all the way to land northwest of Crimea, obviously raising the question of whether, you know, if they have firmly enough established positions, whether they're going to try to move on Odessa next and maybe completely cut Ukraine off from the sea, take the entire coast all the way to Moldova. Now, 
as they're annexing this land, though, I mean, they're not just occupying it and they're not just saying, oh, as they had said at the beginning of the war, that we want independence for the Donbass, but under a Russian protection, wink, wink. But now they're saying, nope, we're going to integrate them into Mother Russia. That's it. They're going to be part of the Federation. And then, at least according to Dmitry Medvedev, and it only does make logical sense, but once they annex these areas, again, as you said, regardless of the legitimacy of the plebiscite, that doesn't matter. That's just the fig leaf anyway. And whether those whether those areas would have joined Russia voluntarily is beside the point. The point is, this is the pretext to annex them. But once he officially annexes them and says this is now Russia, well, obviously, America and Ukraine are going to deny that that's true. They say, no, this is not Russia. This is occupied Ukrainian territory, and we still want to fight for it. Now you have a disagreement about even the nature of the shape of the map. You know what I mean? And who's fighting on whose soil already. So it's not like at the end of the war, in the settlement, the Russians get to seize these territories or something. We're talking about in the middle of the war, the Russians are renaming these territories part of Russia itself in a way that the other side is guaranteed to reject, right? And then prove that they reject it by attacking it and saying, no way, we're, it's our territory and we're not going to stop until we take it back. At that point, it could be that the Russians just semantically trapped us into a nuclear war right there. That because of this stunt, now they're going to have to say, well, we promised to, that we're not going to put up with attacks on our soil. And then they could escalate the war a lot of ways besides nuclear weapons. But yeah, I mean, that's, that, that's, the, that's the clear, that's the clear, you know, uh, objective. I think any anyone with eyes can see that that's what that's why they decided to go ahead with the plebiscite to annex the that region. But I guess the, the better question is, and something you said a little earlier is that you said there's some solace in uh, Russia just winning this conflict soon enough and then we have to just turn tail. But isn't the the using this card, this trump card that they're using to annex the region, isn't that in response to you know, the gains that the Ukrainian military has been having in this war? I mean, they, they have been pushing back and retaking a lot of territory. So this seemed like the way that they could legitimize escalating uh the the type of force that they're using yeah well look i mean the american policy from the beginning was they assumed that the russians would immediately crush the ukrainian military and that they would be backing an insurgency all these months they didn't think they were going to be backing the ukrainian state still existing and with a you know a military that's holding it together and continuing to fight the whole idea was we're going to replicate the afghan mujahideen type war in supporting an insurgency so it could be that even if the Russians, you know, attack Kiev and crush the government there and smash the army, that the American policy would still be to back partisans as long as they could. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and the CIA has very long relationships with the radical right, uh, you know, militant factions in Ukraine dating back through the whole Cold War. So um, all those possibilities are there. Yep. I mean... I mean, Russia did give, you know, the old college try to taking over Kiev way back in the beginning of the war, and it it didn't really pan out. That's what they they say, although I'm not sure about that. I mean, I know a lot of skeptics say that that was all a feint anyway, 
and supposedly yeah, like I've, all I've real experts theory. say no, but I know the yeah. Marine Corps, uh, some Marine Corps journal just put out a big study like this that had a very compelling argument as to why that was a feint and not a real attack on Kiev. I mean, one way I kind of feel like they they might as well they they tried yeah. and put full effort to see what it, like let's see what happens maybe we could just take Kiev in a couple of weeks. Nah, oh, I don't think so. That way. Yeah, I you know um I'd recommend people read Colonel McGregor on that and a couple of others. I, I wish I knew where that study was about the Marines. I think it was like a whatever Marine War College they have or whatever. I just published this thing in one of their journals. Maybe people can find that. Um, yeah, I, mean, I think like the other regular on oh, the, but it, was, it made sense that it was keeping the Ukrainian military divided so that they couldn't go and focus on defending Mariupol and other places in the south as the Russians were trying to seize all of Donetsk was their, you know, first priority there. Right. So, I mean, I, I, I agree. I've, I've, I think I've read this exact report that you're that you're referencing and and it is a, a compelling argument for sure. And I think I've even said this on the show a few months ago as well that it was a faint um but i mean there's no question that russia's had its trouble organizing sure. you know uh their their special military operation whatever they're calling it they're definitely showing their weaknesses and showing their inability to do you know combined um combined warfare with all of their branches they still can't do air superiority for some reason you know they they still can't hold on to you know the territories that they that they did occupy so that that makes me more skeptical about the faint uh, idea just in nature of like how messy the um the outcome is and it seems like to me and this is what scares me is that the only real strength that they have is the nuclear threat right and that's why they needed to annex yeah this, i'm not so this. sure of that i mean i think they certainly have had their setbacks but it you know it has not all been about holding territory as much as it's about grinding the ukrainian military down so if they have to strategically withdraw here or there that's one thing now obviously the ukrainians just had that big success on the 10th 11th 12th there in taking northern luhansk but the reason they were able to do so is because the russians i guess stupidly had made the mistake that nothing like that was an offing so they had moved all of their force out of there to go reinforce kursan and all they had left behind was like some National Guard volunteers and local like gendarme, you know, SWAT types, you know, police types, paramilitaries to hold that territory. Mm -hmm. So once the Ukrainians realized, hey, there's no one behind that line, we could push through it. They were able to do that. But I don't know that it really matters that much to the Russians because they still, uh, you know, gave them a hell of a whooping as they were retreating still. And they were able to hold on to Kherson at the cost of many Ukrainian lives at that point. And so, um, and then it just made them mad, right? Then they just called up their reserves, which frees up all of their other active duty guys to go to the front and go and fight and double the war. And then as you're describing here, now they're outright annexing a huge part of the East, which is this huge escalation. Um, but, you know, I would say too that for all the trouble that the Russians have had, I think it does prove that this whole story that they're this giant juggernaut that's going to take over all of Europe if we don't stop them and all that is pretty pathetic. Right, that's beyond that's beyond their capability. Yeah, I think for sure. that's definitely being disproven. But on the other mm -hmm. hand, just in terms of like who has more artillery shells and who has more infantry men to fire them, the answer is Russia. And just look at the map. And just look at the population numbers. They've got more fighting age males by far 
and they've got more artillery shells. And that's always been how they fought this war since near the beginning. It's just essentially carpet bombing with artillery, slowly moving forward and just grinding the Ukrainian military up. There's always quotes of these Ukrainian soldiers saying, ah, man, we launched five shells and then they launched 5,000 and we get creamed and then we got to retreat and then it happens again. Man, it got us overmatched when it just comes to this, you know, World War One technology. It just slowly blasting through. So sure. I think they can't keep it up forever. Propaganda. Either, though. You know, I'm sorry. They can't keep it up forever. I mean, as vast as as Russia's, um, you know, war chest is. Well, compared to unlimited. Ukraine, they can keep it up longer than Ukraine can. I think. Oh, of course. Yeah. Uh, I don't think Ukraine doubt, can keep up the bodies Ukraine. forever that they're losing. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, like the Americans manpower. supply a lot of weapons, but um, it, at the end, it comes down to manpower. I think there's a lot of propaganda, too, about, um, oh, Russia thought it was going to be so easy. Like, I don't know where they got this from. It was obviously like, oh, intelligence officials claimed to the Washington Post that Trump was promised he'd be drinking out of Zelensky's skull in six oh, days and all this. It's like, how do you know that? You know, I read a, an article today in the New York Times that was, oh, American officials say that Putin is so mad at his men and, and they're so mad at him because he keeps intervening in the war and making these decisions and all these things. And it's like, they don't even pretend to give you a reason why you should believe any of this whatsoever right. at all. And only occasionally they even bother saying the official said, but like, oh, the official said, huh? An anonymous official <laughs> claims, and he doesn't say we have really good intelligence of any sort of nature at all. We have any reason just, you know, on our intelligence assessment, we gave this high confidence. They don't even say that, right? It's just like, I don't know. Let's just put some bullshit in the times and we'll just <laughs> right. make what up, make up whatever we want and they'll just print it. And it's ridiculous. It's amazing to read. It's, it's yeah. the social psychology of it, right? So like, like we've been talking about throughout the show, it's, yeah. it's trying to personify these, dis, this decision-making with a story. It's much more palatable and, and for some people believable to think, oh, Russia's this giant country and they have a massive uh, uh, military and they have nukes and they still haven't won yet. So it must be that Putin is so mad at his troops and all these crazy changes in what appears to be weaknesses <clears throat> must be this internal strife. And, and they, they make this reality TV show about it. Yeah. And that's how they make the, the, the opinion palatable, right? Uh, yep. or, or digestible to the lay person. And then they just, as you said, they just tag it with uh, an official said. <laughs> the government yep, official said. Which is against the, the Times own rules, right? Like they, if you look at their, their sourcing rules, they're supposed to have at least one named official and two anonymous ones, or maybe three or something before they run some things like that. But they just break those rules all the time. Really? That's one of their rules? I, I mean, I guess I've been reading a different newspaper for the past <laughs> 20 years. <Yeah. laughs> like, shit I'm not they saying they obey their rules. I'm saying they break them. That there is, yep. Russians are paying bounties on the, um, paying the Taliban bounties. Well, now, Henry... That was anonymous, I'm sorry, right? but that it, 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 as Charlie Savage argued to me, that it is an absolute fact that there was a rumor going around like that. And that's all he said, dude. He didn't say Jimmy was sleeping with Susie. He said he heard that. And that is true. 
And that's good enough to print on the top of the New York Times front page above the fold. Russians killing Americans in Afghanistan. Well, that wasn't just the New York Times. It was was it the Wall Street Journal that published that first? Yeah, or no, Washington I think it was the New York Times. On it too. Yep. It was all three of them did, but it and was then, it was outrageous. And then they all went on Twitter and said, "Our story is confirmed." And that was what I was fighting with them about. I reprinted our email exchange, a little bit of it, in enough already. I'm like, look, man, you're sitting here on Twitter bragging that your story's confirmed when your story is complete garbage and you're walking it back, your paper's walking it back already six ways. And you're sitting here saying your story is confirmed. And he's going, no, dude, we didn't say that our story is confirmed that the Russians are paying these bounties. We're saying our story is confirmed that that is a rumor that is going around. Now the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal have also confirmed the absolute fact that that is a rumor that is going around. And that's what we were celebrating is confirmed. That, wow, we sure are right that there's this rumor going around that the Russians are killing Americans. We have no reason in the world to believe that it's true. We know now, oh, NSA disavows it. Oh, military disavows it. Afghan commander general disavows it. CENTCOM disavows it. Everybody disavows it. CIA analysts back in Langley disavow it. Oh, no. Now, who do you got, Charlie Savage? Uh, Afghan interrogators. Oh, yeah. No, the, I'm sure. In fact, he puts, he's like, oh, yeah. Well, that, where's the conflict of interest there? Uh, yeah, I think it's pretty obvious. Where's the conflict of interest there? To try to disrupt Trump from withdrawing troops by trying to turn this thing into a Russia scandal. Fucking tool. That's Charlie Savage. But everybody knows it's okay because he got fired from the New York Times and now he washes dishes at Pizza Hut back in his hometown. Forever disgrace. Everyone mocks him and spits at him everywhere he goes. They chant his name, Charlie the liar. Charlie the CIA trick. Dirty little trick. Needs to take a bath after turning tricks for the CIA. Telling ridiculous lies and having no shame or dignity whatsoever. I wonder how much Charlie Savage's family hates him for embarrassing him like that. You know what I mean? At Thanksgiving dinner. Jesus, Charlie. Everyone at work is always making fun of me because I got the same name as that liar from the New York Times who turns tricks for the CIA. Telling ridiculous lies about Russia all the time. You know, stuff like that. I guess if only uh, Jeffrey Goldberg would get the same treatment. Yeah, seriously, no, he just gets promoted. Yeah, he he, he found the trick to to keep on becoming like editor in chief at magazines. Um, so I, I guess that trick being put Israel first always. Sorry, go ahead. It seems like someone's gonna misquote me on purpose if I say it like this, but a disclaimer: it, it almost seems like best case scenario is that Russia wins this war. Then, you know, the Ukrainian army just kind of either flips or or collapses or whatever. And then there's like this long term insurgency in, in eastern Ukraine and in the areas that Russia annexes. And it's just a long term, you know, protracted struggle for the next two decades. Um, th that almost seems like the best case scenario. And Jesus. it's uh, it's scary to think that. It's Listen, I don't I don't want Russia to win this war. My only fear is that America's going to win it. You know, I would very much like to see Ukraine uh, 
maintain their independence. I mean, I don't really give a damn who rules the Donbass or any of this stuff, but I'm an opponent of aggressive war. I don't want to see an aggressive war succeed for Putin any more than it should succeed for anyone else. Um, but, um, you know, look at America's role in, in trying their best to perpetuate this conflict. You know, they refuse to negotiate. It's been 31 weeks, 32 weeks. We won't talk. Our, our Secretary of State still will not talk to the Foreign Minister of Russia about figuring out a way to end this war. And they're doing everything they can to make it worse. Um, I mean, all they really need to do is just back off. You know, it's just like with the terror war. People go, oh, yeah, well, what's your magical solution to solving the terrorism problem? Then? Well, first of all, let's stop backing terrorists. And second of all, let's stop motivating them to attack us uh, by intervening in places where we don't belong. And then I think we can probably figure out what to do with the last few incorrigible ones and how to keep them off of our shores pretty easily after that. It's the same thing here. It's the right thing to stop doing the wrong thing. It's not appeasing Osama bin Laden and it's not appeasing Vladimir Putin. It's doing what you ought to be doing in the first place, which is meaning, you know, the U.S. federal government, which is acting like a humble, modest, constitutional republic, a limited, humble, constitutional republic that minds its own damn business, leads the world, if at all, by example, uh, rather than with military force. And stay the hell out of Eastern Europe. It's just true. Vladimir Putin said in his declaration of war, he goes, look, the communists drew these borders around Ukraine in a weird way anyway. Then Khrushchev gives them Crimea, which is all messed up. And he goes, then Gorbachev gives them full independence, which he's against. But then he says, listen, but that was the status quo. We're living with that. Fine, Ukraine's independence, independent. But then America won't allow that. There's no such thing as Ukrainian independence. Either they belong to America or they belong to us. Well, it's us, not you. You know, if the Americans are this relentless, they will not stop. They will continue to overthrow the government here. They will not implement the Minsk II peace deal. Keep trying. Now they're trying to overthrow the government of Belarus again. Forget it. You won't accept Ukrainian independence. And we won't accept Ukrainian pseudo-independence under your domination. We'll go ahead and dominate it instead. You know? So, was that fair or nice? No. But who put Ukraine into that position? The United States of America did. You know, back in 2014 or 15, John Mearsheimer, and I interviewed him about this at the time. John Mearsheimer wrote a thing in uh, Foreign Affairs Magazine about how this is all the West's fault. I think that was the title of it. The crisis in Ukraine is all the West's fault. And he gave this big speech. And anybody can find this on YouTube. It's got millions of views. Mearsheimer on Ukraine. And at Harvard, I think it is. And... Um, he says in there, he says, America is leading Ukraine down the primrose path and they're going to get wrecked. He's saying we're making all these promises to them about all these things we're going to do for them. But the promises that we're making, if the Russians believe us that we really are going to do this and if we really are going to do it, then the Russians are going to invade and destroy Ukraine before they let us do it. And we know this now. So we should not be doing this. And I have to tell you, I need to look up the etymology of primrose path. I'm not exactly where that comes from. Uh, not exactly sure where that comes from. But I know that to mean a nice looking path that leads to the pit of hell at the end or 
some barbed wire or something horrible, right? A CIA torture camp or whatever's at the end of a primrose path, whatever a primrose is. Nice looking path, but it leads to disaster, right? And that's what he was saying. That was, you know, uh, eight years ago, seven, eight years ago. America's leading Ukraine down the primrose path and Ukraine is going to get wrecked because we're putting them in a situation where the Russians are going to attack them. Then what are we going to do? Feel the land army in Ukraine? Nah, we're not going to back them up. We're just going to get them into a fight. Let's you and him fight. That's what America's doing here. So that's not appeasing Putin to stop doing that. He's the one been appeasing us. We should be backing down from all of this. And, you know, look at the story. We already knew this from Ukrainian Pravda, not Russian Pravda. Ukrainian Pravda, that just means truth. It's one of their, you know, publications there. Um, not that everything they say is true. I'm just saying that's the name of it. But <laughs> they reported that America and, and uh, Britain intervened in April of this year to prevent a peace deal from taking place. And Boris Johnson flew to Ukraine and said, no, you don't, you better not do it. Well, now we know even more detail from Fiona Hill, the hawk who testified, first of all, she verified that the CIA warned Bush not to offer Ukraine membership in NATO back in 2008. But anyway, same lady who testified against Trump during uh, impeachment and is a horrible Russia hawk. She admitted in her recent article in Foreign Affairs that they had a deal in principle done. They just had to like officially sign it and make a thing out of it. And then it was the Americans that sent Boris Johnson, the UK prime minister to intervene and promise to cut off all their aid and everything if they would sign this deal with Russia. So we could have had a negotiated settlement to this war. I think about when the Turks and the Israelis were trying to do uh, shuttle diplomacy. Naftali Bennett from Israel is going, well, I got friendly relations with both sides here. Let me see what I can do. Um, it's not often you hear me attributing positive motives to the Israelis intervening in an international dispute. <laughs> they evidently were trying to do their best. Same thing for Recep Erdogan. And then the Americans and the, and the Brits did everything they could to scotch that, to ruin that and keep the war going. I mean, doesn't that sound absolutely crazy? Like I'm lying, man, you can look that up in foreign affairs journal right now by Fiona Hill. The hawk who works for Biden or worked for him is cl extremely close to the Democrats, not the Republicans. And she wasn't breaking a scandal. She that whole article is about how Putin is a psychopathic madman who wants to conquer everything. And all of his excuses are simply excuses. He has no motives at all that are genuine at all. That's what the whole article is about. And then she goes, yeah, but by the way, you know, once we refuse to accept a peace deal in April, that ship has sailed. Now he's determined to take even more of the country. So in fact, I'm not even sure that she wrote that honestly. Like that almost reads like the editor put that paragraph in there. It doesn't even fit much with the rest of the story, but still it's got it's her like name on it. She ain't disavowed uh, it. Like the Rand you know? Corporation's disclaimers at the bottoms of their crazy ideas, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, these people are nuts, man. Like I said about that B-1 bomber thing, like that sounded crazy about when we were talking about China. Oh, if they can just sink our Navy, we'll just get more B-1 bombers. Well, you know who came up with that? That was old uh, Crooked Eyes, um, um, uh, Michelle Flournoy, who was the founder of the Center for a New American Security and who was the Deputy Secretary of Defense for Policy in charge of implementing the massive failed surge escalation, the tripling of the Afghan war and 
which led to nothing but total catastrophe for uh, three, four years under Barack Obama before the big drawdown there, or much of the drawdown there. Um, and, you know, she's from West Exec Partners, which is all just Clinton administration officials making money, representing, uh, consulting for arms dealers. Her and Anthony Blinken, our current secretary of state, were partners in that. And she's going, yeah, we'll just build a fleet of B-1 bombers and then we'll just sink. She said she wants to be able to sink the entire Chinese Navy and including their entire merchant force in 72 hours. And sink every last Chinese vessel they've got. That'll teach them. Insane. As though that wouldn't lead to Washington, D.C. and New York City and Denver and Honolulu and L.A. and San Francisco and Dallas and Austin and Houston and Miami and Omaha and our entire civilization being nuked off the face of the earth. Which is exactly what would happen. I mean, the Chinese only have about 300 H-bombs, but 300 H-bombs will do you. That's enough. Yeah, that's enough. And they think they can do stuff like that. They can't, but that's their mindset. And frankly, like, you know, I don't know, man. I think that almost entirely these people believe their own BS. There's so little ability of them to to question themselves, to you know, go trip out on some DMT and be like, whoa, do I really believe all the crazy things I think or something? Like, they don't do that. They know they're right, always. There's a great book about the, um, well, one of the chapters was about the Bay of Pigs. It's called The Perils of Groupthink. I think it was Perils of Groupthink. I read it in high school. It was about how the Bay of Pigs invasion plan was the dumbest goddamn thing you ever heard in your life. Are you kidding me? They had revised the plan like 15 times. And it made no sense anymore. It's like that movie Terminator 4 with Christian Bale. We're like, mm-hmm. how many different writers wrote this movie? It makes <laughs> right. But then all the guys around the table sat around and were like, yep, we're putting this out. Right. Same thing with the Bay of Pigs. And it was like anyone around the room, anyone on that table should have said, this is crazy, dude. This is never going to work. You know, we have nearly enough men. Our landing zone is a swamp on, you know, way on the far side of our targets and all these things like it's just just crazy but the idea was if everyone around the table knows that this is smart then i guess i do too again social psychology who's going to be the one who makes everyone else here look like a dick by saying nope you guys are all wrong only i'm right that this is not right and we shouldn't do it nobody wants to do it you see the same dynamics in um in uh you know obama's war in libya where it's hillary samantha power and susan rice want to do it but the Secretary of Defense and the National Security Advisor and the Deputy Secretary of Defense and the Deputy National Security Advisor and the Commander of CENTCOM don't want to do it. All of the actual warfighters and at least people in charge of the warfighters, including even Robert Gates, are saying we should not be doing this. And Obama sides with them. And probably took everything they had to sit there and contradict Hillary Clinton to her face. Like, this lady could have your throat slit, dude. You don't contradict her unless, man, you really feel like you absolutely have to. And then what happened? They contradicted her and lost. And every single one of them shut their mouth after that, man. You're going to swing at Hillary twice and miss again? No. So what do they do? They just go along. She goes, you know what we should do? We've had such luck 
back in Al-Qaeda in Libya, we should do the same thing in Syria. And they all go, hey, good idea, Mrs. Clinton. Because they don't want to fight about it. They already stuck their neck out on Libya and lost. If they fight her on Syria, they're going to be gone. They're going to hurt her feelings and make her upset. <laughs> and you don't want to make her upset. So it's <clears throat> has very little to do with, is it really smart to back a bunch of bin Ladenite suicide bombers just because we hate the Shiites and stuff? That ain't it. The question is, is it smart to contradict Hillary Clinton on this? And the answer is no, it's not. Not if you value your job in the Obama White House. You know, and that was the whole two years of that, you know? Well, I think there's this kind of tacit understanding, and you see this a lot in European countries where, you know, they're sanctioning Russia and they're suffering from, you know, really bad economic consequences where, you know, this, you know, the lady from the Brothers Party, you know, she is just as hawkish on Russia as, as you know, the previous Italian government. Um, I feel like there's like this tacit uh, agreement between Western leaders right now that no matter what, like everyone's going to have to go with this policy. We're going to go down with the ship. If everyone's involved in this and if everyone is down to, to go through the, you know, the economic consequences and the political consequences of this war, then that gives us some layer of protection at the end of the day. And it's that easy to do. It's that easy to get people to go along with it. Uh, and, you know, we just see it over and over again. Give them a narrative and it's on. I remember the first one of these I really learned about was in high school, was the war on drugs. I brought this up about the Crips and the Bloods earlier. But what happened was they did this poll. They always do this poll. What are your biggest concerns about America? And But it's like an open-ended poll, not multiple choice. You get to say whatever you want, and then they rank like the top 20 answers, this kind of thing. They do it every year. And... The way it was then, drug abuse was like 13th on the list or something. This is in, say, like 88, 89. Drug abuse, like 13th on the list, way down. And then they just do a bunch of TV specials about the Crips and the Bloods. So it's black teenagers with submachine guns, right? Rat tat tat. Very, very scary. All of a sudden, drug abuse is the number one issue in America in the polls. There's nothing that is more dangerous facing our country right now than some teenagers with machine guns in Southern Los Angeles. It's an absolute crisis. We need to pass a hundred new laws and we need to completely have a moral panic about this. And, and then TV lost interest in the subject. And then the next year they did the poll. Oh, and the poll, by the way, had gone up to, yeah, it was, oh, I said the number one issue. The next year it was back down to 13. So it was just TV had made drugs go from 13 to one back to 13 again, simply by Blair and their little trumpet. It was just amazing to see. And that, in fact, that has been my template for understanding American politics ever since then. I swear I learned that in like ninth grade, 10th grade. I had a great teacher who was like, look at this. I'm like, wow, American adults, they're just a bunch of tall children is all they are. They're tiny, pathetic simpletons who can be led around by the government at any time. The way I like to say it now, Americans will be, believe anything as long as it's not true. You know, as long as someone powerful is trying, with a conflict of interest, is trying to manipulate them, they'll go for it every time. And it's, and look, I blame myself too. I'm a tall child too. I don't pretend to be anything but, but, you know, 
it's quite a learning experience for me as a young kid that that's how easy it is to manipulate people. Should we be supporting death squads in Nicaragua? I don't know. Well, here's a TV show. Yes, we should. Or no, we absolutely shouldn't. And it's like, you can claim that's your own opinion, but it's not. Somebody just handed this stuff to you and that's how you go. You know, people give me a lot of deference. People know I've done a lot of reading on this stuff. I have covered it for a long time and they know I'm not lying. A lot of people trust me, maybe without verifying. You know, they should at least double check me sometimes. I think a lot of people just trust me and they should trust me. I'm not a liar, but that doesn't mean I'm always right. But there are a lot of people who are just, they've already decided that they'll like, instead of listening to ABC News, they'll listen to me instead. They'll take my word for it instead of ABC News's word for it, which is really not that much of an improvement in the sense of <laughs> the critical thinking of the recipient there. They're definitely getting a, I think, a, probably a more honest version from me than from them. But uh, from ABC, I mean, but um, it shouldn't be that easy to agree with anybody. You know what I mean? Why can't we channel this energy of of easily manipulating the tall uh, children <laughs> into doing positive things? Why can't I don't we know, channel man. that in it like that? I just way? I don't know what to do. I just try to beat everybody over the head with what I think is right and wrong and true and false as much as I can. They either like it or they don't. Mostly they don't, but it's the only way I know how to do it. You know what I mean? Um, if I knew a bunch of rock stars and famous people, like I would have them wear Rothbard shirts. I don't know. Um, <laughs> um, try to talk about Julian Assange. For people watching the video version of this later, here's my Julian Assange shirt. People need to know that people like Assange are heroes, man. Don't let your government tell you to hate your heroes. This guy's rotten in jail for publishing the truth about war crimes. He's not in jail for helping Vladimir Putin rig the election in 2016. Vladimir Putin didn't rig the election of 2016, and those are none of the charges against Assange. It's not true anyway. What he's being tried for is liberating the Iraq and Afghan war logs, the State Department cables, and he didn't even liberate them. He's not the leaker. He's the leaky. He's the publisher and they're putting him in prison. If people that you know and respect hate Assange and tell you that Assange is a bad person, that person is a bad person. And the rest of the things that that person believes are also incredibly suspect for being the received wisdom of a bunch of corrupt liars and criminals, the people who run this government. You know, look at the way they did Edward Snowden too. Edward Snowden leaked information proving that our government, the national security establishment, was violating the rights of the American people vastly, downloading and copying everything on you. Your phone's location for five years, everywhere your phone has been. In other words, every living room you've been in, every car you've driven or ridden in. They keep in every phone call you've made, every email you've sent, Every search term you've typed into Google, everything on you, Apple, Facebook, Twitter, everyone, they just infiltrate it straight out of their servers without even asking. They can type in a, a little code and hit enter, and now they can record every keystroke on your keyboard forever without even putting a device on it. Edward Snowden revealed all these things that our government is waging an electronic 
eavesdropping war against the American people as though we were all the Al-Qaeda terrorists they supposedly are looking for when they're not backing them in Libya, Syria, and Yemen. Um, and what do they do to Snowden? They left him stranded in Russia when he was, all he was doing was on a layover. He was just changing planes on his way to Latin America. And then Obama stripped him of his passport. So now he couldn't change planes. Now he's stranded in Russia. And why do they do that? Just so they could demonize him for being in Russia when they're the ones who left him stranded there. And think about the decision that they made there. I mean, on one hand, yes, he already gave his secrets to the Post and the Guardian. But also, he knows a lot of stuff. You think it makes sense for national security purposes to leave him stranded in Russia? But it makes sense for public relations purposes to leave him stranded in Russia. And then what do they do? They demonize him ever since. They pretended that what he did wasn't in the national interest at all. He only did it because he's a foreign agent. He stole those secrets and gave them to Vladimir Putin. And then Putin gave him citizenship as a reward or just some ridiculous narrative like that. In the Wall Street Journal, of course, Edward J. Epstein specialized in this in the Wall Street Journal for years, demonizing Snowden and just absolutely printing the lies of the CIA that he was a traitor to this country when he's absolutely a hero. If Daniel Ellsberg's a hero for leaking the Pentagon Papers, then Julian Assange and Edward Snowden are heroes for publishing and, and for that matter, Chelsea Manning for leaking um, the uh, State Department and, and war logs and um, and all of that NSA information. And Assange also, by the way, this is what they really hate about him, was he published the Vault 7 leak. That was some top secret stuff. The State Department cables was not. <coughs> but the Vault 7 leak, that was on the order of Edward Snowden's leak on the NSA. That proved that the CIA has their own separate electronic warfare campaign going on against you too. This was the one where they showed, yes, they can watch you through your smart TV and you know all of these things. And that they have an eavesdropping capability on par with the NSA or approaching the ambition of the NSA. And that they use it domestically, the CIA does. Just the same way the FBI abuses the NSA's powers and gets to rifle through all their stuff. CIA has their own thing. That Vault 7 leak was huge. It also proved, by the way, that they can hack into your server and make it look like somebody else did it. <coughs> um, and all that stuff. And they even had a deal, man. There was a great report about how Assange was working a deal with the CIA that he would not leak Vault 7 if they would get him immunity and let him out of his confinement in the embassy there. And CIA was working on it, but what happened was, I forget now, I don't think it was Assange's lawyer. I think someone at the CIA, I'm sorry, I can't remember, but somebody blabbed to John Warner, the senator. And John Warner, the senator, went and told the FBI. And then the FBI intervened and scotched the negotiation and prevented it maybe even leaked the existence of it or something and prevented the negotiation. So then Assange leaked the Vault 7 leak. And that was when the CIA was like ultimate vendetta against him now, before he had just embarrassed the State Department and the NSA, you know? Oh no, the NSA was separate. Before he had just embarrassed the military and the State Department. Here he was going after the CIA. So then that was when they really doubled down their effort to go after him. But anyway, the real point being, 
the war party will tell you that these are the bad guys. Manning, Assange, and Snowden are the bad guys. When what are they doing? They're revealing crime by the government. From war crimes to crimes against you and your email box. And which, by the way, the federal courts have struck down these programs that Snowden revealed. So this is completely unconstitutional. You can't do that. In other words, completely vindicating Snowden and what he did in revealing those programs that were completely illegal and at the expense of our freedom. And so, I mean, there's a good start, right? Anthony Gregory said to me way back then, he goes, man, if somebody's bad on Bradley Manning, that person is a bad person, period. You are either for this person stealing these, liberating these secrets and publishing them online where the American people have every right to know what's in those cables, or you're a bad person who's just got government all the way down your throat and you're a disgusting disgrace to your ancestors. And that's it. Two kinds of people in this world. You're either for WikiLeaks or against them. And that's a good starting point right there. The people who side with the state against its own whistleblowers, they're the bad guys. And the things that they believe, the other things they believe are also stupid and wrong and illegitimate. Go from there. In fact, go ahead, go to wikileaks.org, read the Vault 7 leak, read the State Department and uh, Iraq and Afghan war logs. Read the DNC leaks and all the Hillary Clinton emails that they posted on there and see why the state hates them so much. You know, it's for their heroism, not for their crime. It's for exposing crime. Well, I don't think there's a better way to end it like that. Um, let's we'll, we'll wrap this this episode up, Scott. Thanks for thanks again for joining us today. Um, it's always a pleasure speaking with you, speaking to you. Um, is there anything that you want to plug? Yes, I got the best Libertarian Institute in the whole world. Well, okay, Mises is really great, but I got the Libertarian Institute, which is really really great. I got AntiWar.com. I'm the editorial director of AntiWar.com. I got a show, the Scott Horton show. I got 5,700 interviews, almost 5,800 interviews going back to 2003, almost all in foreign policy. It's probably a world record there for most podcasts in any one place, scotthorton.org. And then uh, read my books, Fool's Aaron, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, The Great Ron Paul, The Scott Horton Show Interviews, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, and the brand new one is Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. And, um, you know, also just... Put my name in YouTube and see what you find. Yeah, if you guys aren't listening to uh, Scott Horton's show already, what what are you doing? Listen to his show, and then his books are awesome uh, enough already. Uh, Fool's Errand, and of course, um, Hotter Than the Sun. So, yeah, make sure you check out and support Scott. And uh, Scott, thank you, man. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate talking with you again. All right. Peace, Peace everyone.